Hello and welcome to the Religious Nationalism Podcast. My name is Crawford Gribben. Today, Daryl Hart and I have the chance to catch up with Graham Walker. Graham is a professor of politics at Queen's University Belfast and, among his many other qualities, is a well-known and influential commentator on and analyst of religion and nationalism in Scotland and Northern Ireland. Among his many publications are a number of books that are of immediate interest to our listeners. The Labour Party in Scotland, Religion, the Union and the Irish Dimension came out recently from Palgrave Macmillan. And A History of the Ulster Unionist Party, Protest, Pragmatism and Pessimism was published by Manchester University Press. Graham, thanks for your time today and welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, Graham, we're recording this podcast on religious nationalism on St Andrew's Day, 30th of November 2020. But we need to start our conversation by talking about football, another subject you've written about. Last night, the police were called to Celtic Park in Glasgow to rescue the Celtic manager from a crowd of very hostile supporters. Understandably dismayed by their team's recent performance and likely also extremely dismayed by the fact that Celtic's now 11 points behind Rangers in the Scottish League. Is this a metaphor? Uh, yes, I think it's a proxy for various things uh, historically in Scotland. I think I've got to say that I, I was brought up in all of this and, uh, you know, I, I support Rangers and so on. So I've, I've got to put that out there so that everybody will know where I'm coming from. But I'll try and be as impartial as possible. Um, I, I think that the, the rivalry between the two clubs has fed off the Irish question to a great extent. And this is one of the interconnecting themes between Scotland and certainly Ulster or the north of Ireland. Um, historically, the clubs uh, took different positions over the issue of Irish home rule. Uh, and then that later developed into quite a hostile rivalry, which was, was usually characterised in religious terms as Protestant Rangers versus Catholic Celtic. Now, in more recent times, I think the religious element to this uh, has diminished, uh, but the keenness, shall we say, of the rivalry has not. Um, there is a legacy there from the past, and, and all of that historical baggage is, is feeding into the, the current situation uh, where Celtic are, are pursuing uh, a record 10th championship in a row. And Rangers really are the only uh, team that stands between them doing uh, achieving that feat. So thing, th uh, tempers are rising, <laughs> emotions are, are, are getting uh, to fever pitch. So that, I think, helps to explain why the Celtic fans' frustration boiled over last night. Well, Graham, your work over the last 20, 25 plus years has had this twin focus in Scotland and Northern Ireland. And you're interested in showing how the political and cultural context of these two jurisdictions can be mutually explanatory, which is really fascinating kind of insight. How did you come to be interested in these contexts in particular? Well, again, I think that uh, I was very aware growing up in the west of Scotland of the cultural influences from Ireland. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the Orange Order, of course, uh, marched every 12th of July uh, as they did in, in Northern Ireland. And these were massive occasions. Um, they made an impression on the local community. Um, football, of course, was part of this as well. But there was also education. Um, the fact that uh, schools tended to be divided on a religious basis. Um, so you couldn't really get away from it. The distinguishing factors, I think, in relation to Scotland were that uh, mixed marriages were much more common than they were in Northern Ireland. 
Um, and secondly, there was no residential segregation or even occupational segregation on the, ba on the, the level of, of Northern Ireland. So people mixed more. Uh, they worked together. They lived together. They lived up the same tenement close and so on. Um, so there was that uh, healthier aspect, you might say, in Scotland. But at the same time, there were still tensions. There was still a sense of difference. So I think I was always intrigued to try and explore that sense of difference. Um, and ultimately, uh, that led me to the, my doctoral studies to, co to come over to Belfast and do some work into the Northern Ireland labour movement. Because in that respect, again, there was a big difference uh, between the two places. In Northern Ireland, labour politics has struggled to be heard uh, within the co political context where unionism and nationalism were so strong. Uh, in Scotland, labour politics, certainly when I was growing up, were dominant. And in a way, labour politics uh, prospered because class interests, social class issues trumped uh, religious ones or sectarian ones, certainly when it came to the, the ballot box. So that was a, a considerable difference. The only thing that's uh, changed, I think, in Scotland is the extent to which the national question in Scotland has perhaps made Scottish politics now more like Northern Ireland, hmm. in that Labour has been the casualty. The Labour uh, Party in Scotland, of course, ha has almost collapsed in recent years. And that politics that they stood for, that politics of class interest and so on, bringing together Protestant and Catholic workers, um, that has been damaged in recent years, where the main issue of debate in Scotland has been the national question. And that, of course, echoes what has always been the case over here in Northern Ireland. I suppose you could say, if you, as you survey Scottish history, that various kinds of nationalism have been in play at different stages. How, how far back would you have to go to come across a distinctive re religious nationalism? Well, maybe not as far back as you think. I mean, I, I'm struck here with certain events in the 20th century. For instance, the, the reunification of the Kirk in 1929 when I looked into that uh, a number of years ago now and so on, but I, I was very struck with the sense in which there was a, a kind of Scottish nationalism around it. Um, the, the celebration of the reunification of the Kirk in 1929 with the, the Church of Scotland united with the, the United Free Church um, was presented in terms of, you know, this is Scotland, this is the soul of Scotland, this, this is... Um, the, the church of the people, for the people. Uh, there was a sense in which, you know, the, the church and national identity went together. Now, obviously, as we come into the later half of the 20th century, uh, that changes very much because secularization, I think, affects Scotland profoundly uh, from the 1960s. And, and we, the Church of Scotland loses its place as that kind of surrogate parliament, if you like, or the voice of the nation, as, as the Church of Scotland liked to present itself. Um, after the 1960s, its attempt to present itself in this way really loses credibility because it's losing adherents, uh, it's, it's hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging members, um, 
its standing in the country is is diminishing. So that sense in which the church stood for a sense of national identity uh, diminishes, I think, in the second half of the 20th century. But I think we can find it right up till the Second World War. So, you know, I, I would put it, I would probably um, place it there. And is that religious nationalism a cultural thing or is it expressed at the ballot box as well? Well, I think it's more of a cultural thing. Um, you could look at the politics of Scotland in, in the, the time I'm talking about, um, and there would be a certain amount of Scottish national consciousness affecting voters, certainly in relation to uh, the Unionist Party of the time, the, the Conservatives, they were actually called Unionists, but they, are, they were very careful to present themselves as a distinctively Scottish force, uh, playing on the, the themes of Scottish identity and Scotland's position within the Union and, and in a sense, fighting above its weight within the Union. Um, this was always an appeal that was made by Unionists, to some extent still made by Unionists now, is that the Union provides a context where Scots can actually fight above their weight, shall we say, can actually achieve and, and, and perhaps overachieve. Um, so there, there was definitely some of that in their vote. We, we do see in the 1930s the birth of the Scottish National Party, but we don't really see them becoming a political force until the 60s. Um, so it, the expression of this politically is, is, is rather ambiguous, I, I would say, but culturally it is there. Um, it's there in the, the, the things I'm talking about uh, in terms of Scotland's self-image within the Union. And I think this goes back to the empire, because uh, even in the mid-20th century, the Scots are very conscious of their role in the empire, um, and they are very proud of it. I mean, this has much changed now where the empire tends to be forgotten because a lot of Scots now are looking at this in a very different light, of course, and, uh, and not at all proud of their position in it. But for a long time, certainly up until the middle of the 20th century and beyond, the Scots felt that they had been the ones that had uh, disproportionately, I suppose, uh, excelled themselves within the imperial context. They had provided not only um, the administrators and the civil servants and so on, but the, the engineers, the bridge builders, all the, um, the, as well as the soldiers and the missionaries and so on. I mean, it was an enormous contribution that Scotland made to empire. So there was a kind of mindset here which said that, you know, we in Scotland have particular talents. We have particular virtues. We have a wonderful education system. We have a moral seriousness. And all of this we put at the service of the empire and uh, the service of the greater good. Um, so it was really, you know, they, they could conceit of themselves, as we say in Scotland. Uh, but there was a certain self-confidence, I think, about that sense of national identity. Now, things are, are very different now. I mean, uh, the, the sense in which people define Scottish national identity is, is very different and the uh, the things they define themselves against are very different. Um, but I would say certainly it's important to remember that history because I do think it, its legacy endures in some, you know, uh, complex ways. You've mentioned there. If I could just, just follow up real, real brief, briefly there. Um, just 
what do you think accounts for the decline of uh, pride over in British imperialism? Um, I'm I'm watching now the fourth season of The Crown, and I, you Brits may uh, look down on us Americans for being fascinated by that series. I, I find it incredibly charming, but 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 it is a, a theme throughout the series, the decline of the the empire, and I'm curious where you would locate it. Well, uh, I think that, well, a couple of things strike me around this. One is that as Britain decolonized, um, I think the impact of this in Scotland was quite profound because Scotland was aware of how important empire had been to it. Now, as decolonization happened, uh, on the one hand, I think we see some quite progressive forces, even within the Church of Scotland, who are taking liberal, progressive uh, stances in relation to issues of race and issues of exploitation and so on. Um, this is coming through in the 1950s and 60s, even in a body like the Church of Scotland. Um, so there is perhaps a realization or a change in terms of perceptions of empire, perceptions of justice and so on. So that this is part of it. But the other thing is this... Uh, factor that I mentioned earlier about Scots seeing opportunities and exploiting opportunities. Now, as empire shuts down, as it were, Scots are very aware that there's an opportunity structure shutting down. Mm. So they have to actually reorientate themselves. They have to look for other opportunities, if you like, to, to try and exert themselves in the world stage. So this, I think, leads to a, a greater questioning, not only um, of, of how they're going to do this, but also of the union itself. The, the idea that, you know, is the union still mm -hmm. the best means through which Scotland could actually exert influence in the world? Mm -hmm. Because after all, this was a country that, you know, has numerous inventors in its history, um, a, a great deal of uh, international renown and so on. Um, so there is a, a reluctance to, to, to sort of uh, shrink, mm -hmm. as, as it were. Um, but at the same time, there is this greater readiness to 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 question whether the union will, will actually be the vehicle that will allow Scotland to express itself. And would you say that they Scotland has yet to find that what that other vehicle is for opportunity, in effect? I mean, because mm -hmm. either of questions of the of independence or Brexit and all that, that it's still up in the air. Yes, I mean, uh, you mentioned Brexit, but I, I do think Brexit's connected to what I'm saying. Um, the, the vote to remain in the European Union was very decisive in Scotland. And this, I think, is reflective of the Scots' determination to, to have an alternative hmm. kind of international network, um, to, to feel that they are not going to be, you know, cut off, as it were. Um, I do think that Brexit has been a calamity for the union and, and will be and, and may well be its grave digger because mm -hmm. Scots cannot reconcile themselves to the notion that they are going to be forced out of a union, how, however imperfect it might be, is still an outward looking um, and expansive type of affiliation. Thanks. Graham. you've mentioned there the 1960s in a couple of different contexts. Um, partly as a context for decolonization, partly as a context for the beginnings of the growth of the SNP, partly as a context for the beginnings of secularization. 
is, is the growth of nationalist politics in the context of a collapsing empire linked in your in your mind to secularization in any in any way yes i think it is i mean i put it in the context of this cultural disruption you might say that the 1960s represents um you know it, it undoubtedly is the case that this is a time when uh deferential attitudes are thrown off uh, when there was greater questioning about institutions, about traditions, and so on, there's a greater a greater degree of irreverence, shall we say? Um, Darrell's mentioned the crown and so on. I think in this period, uh, you would actually start to see sort of more popular uh, joking about the monarchy and things like that, um, satire. Um, all of that contributes to a culture, I think, where um, traditional patterns and values are upset and it's into that uh, kind of context that nationalism makes its mark. Um, nationalism is, is a convenient catch-all. It can mean many things to many people and in Scotland it, it could actually appeal to a lot of traditional values and so on and an old-fashioned sense of Scottish patriotism uh, but it could also appeal to other things. It could appeal to people who wanted to see a new political paradigm, who, who wanted to break out of that old kind of two-party, left-right, Labour-Tory uh, political paradigm that had been the norm in Britain for about half a century. So there, were, there was a sense of adventurism about it, shall we say, um, and uh, I think it did feed off this cultural restlessness. Um, I, but I think the, the Scottish National Party itself encountered problems after that because quite clearly um, they were a party with very different tendencies within it. Um, this is probably still the case, but they're much better at managing that now than they were when they first broke onto the political scene. Now, so just 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 follow up briefly there too about secularization. To compare it to the U.S., <clears throat> where I think secularization also took shape in the 60s and beyond, and you had uh, part of our cultural politics since then defined with people trying to recover some sort of public national religion, so the so-called religious right and um, Reagan conservatives and all that. Um, it sounds to me like you're saying that nationalism in Scotland and maybe even Northern Ireland went hand-in-hand in hand with a um, secularization but did it also f feed into expressive individualism so that people are celebrating personal identity, whether it be sexual, sexual orientation, ethnicity, even religion? I'm curious about those factors in, in the rise of, of nationalism and whether that nationalism in, in a way encompasses those individualistic tendencies that in the United States, it seems that it's just gone the, so much the other direction of disregard for public institutions, political parties and the like. Well, I, I think that um, what you're suggesting is very much the case in recent times in Scotland. Uh, I don't think this really applies much before the devolution age, shall we say. When, mm. when Scotland got its own parliament at the end of last century, um, I think... 
what you see, obviously, is a new political context in Scotland, new opportunities mm -hmm. to raise certain issues and so on. New voices are able to be heard, shall we say. And in many ways, that, that was regarded as, as very positive. There was a sense in which people felt devolution opened a space for those uh, people to be, to be heard that hadn't been heard, minority rights to be debated that hadn't been debated and so on. And this undoubtedly took place. But I think what, what also has happened is that politics in Scotland has become quite fractured, as it has done in other places, around matters of identity. Mm. So the identity politics, I would say now in Scotland, is really quite a potent force. But nationalism seems able to absorb it. It mm. seems able to, again, I think because it's one of those uh, rather catch-all movements, um, it's able to, to shall we say, uh, cut with the grain of this in the way that the Labour Party has not been able to do, because the Labour Party was very much based around that idea of class, about social and economic questions, improving working class um, living standards, uh, attacking poverty, attacking unemployment and so on. Now, the, the SNP has done a good job of, of claiming to be part, uh, on the left and uh, addressing those issues as well. But where it's also succeeded is, I think, being quite nimble in the new, arguably treacherous world of identity politics. Mm. Um, so this is quite interesting. And I think it has a religious dimension, which, if, if, if you will, you just let me uh, expound on. Please do. The Catholic vote in the west of Scotland, and by that I mean the Catholic community in Scotland, which is of Irish extraction, basically, and th this is what we started off talking about, was Irish influences in Scottish life. That community was a back, the backbone of the Labour Party for generations. Um, its vote went practically en masse to the Labour Party. And without that vote, Labour could not have had the tranche of seats that it uh, enjoyed at Westminster and the political dominance that it enjoyed for, for so long in Scotland. Now, that vote has gone from mm. Labour and it's by and large gone to the SNP. Now, mm. it's not absolutely clear you know, why that is, or, or you know, it, there's a lot of disillusionment with Labour and so on. There, there's a lot of maybe reluctant nationalists among the, the, the Catholic voters who have defected from one party to the other. But there's also this sense, I think, that um, Catholics now in Scotland feel that their voice has been heard and that Scotland is no longer, shall we say, the Protestant country it was. And is no longer the country which they believe, uh, to a great extent, maltreated them. So they feel that this is a new Scotland. They feel that the SNP represent that. Um, and I think that this is part of the, the new identity politics in Scotland. Mm. Because mm. the issue of sectarianism, religious discrimination and so on has been quite well aired in Scotland in recent years. And I think or part of my argument in my book about the Labour Party was that this um, led to a, a situation where Catholics um, on one and the same time felt that Scotland was changing for the better, 
but on the other hand, became all the more conscious of themselves as a group. So that that old uh, allegiance to the Labour Party and the working class interest, I think, was diluted and the, the group interest, if you like, was mm. promoted. So I, I do think that the identity politics encompasses religion to some extent as well. Mm. Um, on the Protestant side of that argument, I think that there, has, there are some disaffected Protestants who believe that Scotland has forgotten its Protestant history, has forgotten its Protestant identity, and is... Uh, is not pleased about that. And, uh, you know, there's a certain echo there of what you often hear in Northern Ireland among some Protestants, um, that they are, they are losing out, that they are not, um, they're not, um, uh, their rights are being trampled on and so on. So there's a sense in which there are echoes, I think, of Northern Ireland and Scotland Mm. now uh, that have religious dimensions. How does the SNP handle the, the um, Roman Catholics as a group? Does it? I, I, I'm ask, acting, asking out of complete ignorance, but I'm curious how they finesse that. If since, since it seems like it's a fairly, what I read in the press headlines at least is a fairly secular party. Well, um, on the one hand, there is the education issue. Now, again, in terms of that group identity, in terms of that Catholic community identity, education has been very important in Scotland. It has also been important over here in Northern Ireland. It, it again, is a connecting theme. Um, The Catholic Church in both places have been very concerned to keep control of their schools. Mm. Um, Now, the SNP, certainly from Alex Salmond onwards, from the time he became leader, were very conscious of the importance of the Catholic vote, of winning it from Labour, and they made it absolutely clear that they would defend those schools. They would mm. defend the right, the, the, the way that those schools were publicly funded, 100% publicly funded, uh, mm. state-funded, um, and that there would be no uh, move, if you like, towards um, a, 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 an education system where faith schools were, were marginalised. So that, I think, was a very important part of it because the schools issue, I think, is crucial to the community identity in Scotland. Now, you will find Catholics now who who are breaking with their church, who, you know, uh, question the extent to which there should be faith schooling or or state-funded schools, uh, faith schools. Um, But I think there is still a strong community identity there, which you might say does feed off the schools. You know, the schools are part of that. The schools, if you like, feed into that sense of, of a group solidarity. Right. Um, right. So I think that the SNP's <laughs> um, careful uh, approach to that issue is part of it. Um, the other part of it, you might say, and this is where, you know, things can, that's highly debatable, but let me throw it out there. Um there is a, a section, at least, of the Catholic community in Scotland, very conscious of its Irish heritage, who are not, shall we say, all that enthusiastic about British symbolism. They're not enthusiastic about the monarchy of the Union Jack or anything like that. So the SNP's cause of Scottish independence and so on, um, it's quite congenial to them. Mm. You might say that potentially it always was, but that the class interest and the the 
social and economic issues that were uh, advanced by Labour took priority. But now I think there are more and more in the Catholic community who, who are rather prone to see Scotland breaking away from the Union in terms of, you know, their Irish heritage and, they, and they're quite favourable. <coughs> Graham, it's striking what you say there about the, the, the sectarianism that, that lingers in the Scottish cultural imagination to, to a large extent, and also the way in which you link the public debate about that to the, ref, uh, to, to the referendum about the devolution and the institution of the Scottish Parliament. I'm thinking about James Macmillan, the composer's lecture, mm -hmm. Scotland's Shame, and then a book of the same title that was edited, I think, by Tom Devine, wasn't it, a couple of years yes. later. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of noise, a lot of discussion culturally in the media and so on, about discussion in the early years of, of devolution. But mm. fast forward to 2016, uh, the white book that came out, published by the Scottish Government, Scotland's Future, which was a kind of a blueprint for what an independent Scotland might look like. And I was struck mm. by the almost total absence of reference to religion in that mm. at all. Mm. Yes, uh, I think that, you know, there's a, I think there's a secular... Uh, temper to Scotland now that's undeniable but there's a co it coexists with you know to you well I, I think the term I would use would be tribalism certainly in the west of Scotland uh, as I say I don't think those deep tribal community identities have gone away um, there are fewer people uh, claiming to be adherents to a particular church, to uh, to be church goers, um, to accept the uh, principles or the the dictates of churches and so on, and various issues, certainly moral issues, um, but something still survives. Um, I do think in the Catholic, in relation to the Catholic community, there is still a, a, a sensitivity there. There, there have been various uh, surveys and so on, inquiries into sectarianism since Scotland had its parliament in 1999. And uh, in one of them, um, which was conducted actually by a, an Ulster University academic, Duncan Morrow, um, there were, the point was made that there was still acute sensitivity on the part of Western Scotland Catholics, as if any kind of encroachment on what they saw as vital symbols of their identity um, would be resisted. And, and undoubtedly, um, schools come into that category. Um, and, and I think there are other, obviously, there has been controversies in recent years over orange walks in Scotland, for instance, so that, um, you know, if, if an orange walk takes place and it goes past a Catholic church and there's ill feeling, that uh, becomes an issue. Um, all sorts of things like that are still happening. Um, so while I, I would accept what you say in terms of, uh, you know, that, that document, uh, I'm not sure it actually speaks to the reality in the ground. I think there are still a lot of sense of sensitivities and, um, you know, suppressed tensions, shall we say. Graham, can we, can we talk about the other leg of your research, which very much focuses on Northern Ireland context? Obviously, mm. next year we're coming up to the, the centenary of the founding of uh, this jurisdiction. Mm. If, if the story of Scotland over the last hundred years has been about deteriorating religious nationalism and mm. a much more complex, multifaceted kind of politics that's emerged as a consequence, 
Do we see similar things or different things in Northern Ireland? Um, we do see uh, similar things in the sense of the growth of secularism recently. Um, uh, if I could start at the more in the more recent uh, times, um, the number of people I think who are now saying they have no religion um, has has gone up quite substantially. Um, there is a school of thought that would argue that it's the increasing secularization from about the 1990s that helps the peace process where people's identities are not as strongly defined by religion and therefore this does open up a bit more space. Um, so I think things like that are, are happening and undoubtedly Northern Ireland now is also a society where the voices of people who had not been heard before on the grounds of gender or sexuality and whatever um, are actually now making themselves heard in the political sphere. Um, so all, all of that has changed and changed quite markedly. Um, but again, we are dealing here uh, in Northern Ireland with a lot of historical baggage and we cannot um, help but be aware of the extent to which uh, the Northern Ireland state for many years ha had a Protestant character. Um, whether the term Protestant state, you know, is often bandied around, I think we have to be a bit careful about that. I mean, in one sense, yes, because the, the Protestant majority, shall we say, undoubtedly get the best part of the deal and their political views were always reflected in the government and so on and so forth. But... In terms, in institutional terms or constitutional terms, um, this was not a Protestant state, certainly not in comparison with Southern Ireland, where if you look at the 1937 constitution, there was actually a clause there about the special position of the Catholic Church. That is the identification of the state with Catholic events such as the Eucharistic Congress. Um, even the state broadcaster, RTE, programmed in the, the Angelus and things like that. Now, there are no equivalents of those in Northern Ireland. So in many ways, the South is, is more obviously a Catholic state, mm. you might say, than the North is a Protestant state. But um, what, what I think gives the, the, the Northern Ireland problem, I suppose it, it's... it's 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 um, rather difficult character is that uh, there was a sense in which the majority, the Protestant majority, got their way politically, and that the Catholic minority were were ill-treated, um, and their national aspirations were uh, so uh, subordinated. So it became a, a question then of, of uh, national identity as well as religion. And I think in the Northern Ireland uh, case, it's very interesting that if you ask Protestants to define the Northern Ireland problem, um, most of them will put religion in there. Um, many of them will say it's a religious problem. Now, if you ask Catholics, very few of them probably would even mention religion. To them, it's a political problem. It's about national identity. Now, that's very interesting. Because the Northern Ireland problem is all the more difficult, I think, when there is a lack of agreement as to what actually the problem is. Mm. And 
you know, the, the, the sense in which Protestants, uh, if I use the term, ha have the, the sense that this is a religious problem um, is part of this. And, and I think also we have to, to factor in that uh, Protestants are very aware of their own internal diversity, of their denominational differences. Um, they look upon Catholics as a monolith, certainly in comparison to them. It's a, a very pertinent question as to whether um, the blanket term Protestant outranks the specific denominational term of Presbyterian or Anglican or Methodist in a person's sense of identity. And I don't think very much work has been done on hmm. that. Hmm. Um, it's something that you, we need to dig deeper into because there's too many generalizations about the Protestant community, where, uh, as we all know, um, that, that's a very divided community in many ways. Um, and that, uh, for instance, the Presbyterians had their own agenda for the history of the, in the, 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 the 50 year history of the Northern Ireland state. So there's a lot to unpick there, um, but there's no doubt that uh, uh, although, as I say, a lot of people would see this first and foremost as a political problem, um, religion, I don't think, can, can be discounted from it at all. May I, be, may I ask one question? Um, this is probably out of, might seem like out of left field, but it's still very relevant because <clears throat> it's part of uh, Scotland and Northern Ireland's history, at least. Um, I'm working now on Presbyterians in, in, in British politics, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. And of course, national covenants were huge and huge force in, um, in, in British politics, especially the 17th century with civil war and, and the like. Uh, very messy time. Uh, makes America look like a picnic in some ways. Um, is there any residence anymore of the national covenants in Scotland? Is there any echo of that in, in the current political landscape? But just out of curiosity. I, I'm, I'm doubtful about that today. Um, I, I don't see much evidence of that. Uh, certainly over the last 20 years of devolution and so on, I, I, I remember looking into the debate on the 450th anniversary of the Reformation in the Scottish Parliament. And there was very little reference to anything like that. It was all very subdued. It was, um, you know, a, a few references to uh, the Reformation being beneficial for literacy and things like that, but no great sense of celebration. And uh, all the MSPs, the members of the Scottish Parliament of different parties, not wishing to make too much of this. Um, so that was significant in itself. And I think if there was any sense of the resonance of the covenants and so on, you, you would probably have heard it around then. Right. But if we go back to, for instance, the period just following the Second World War, um, this was when the Labour Party were in power in London. And there was a great deal of anxiety in Scotland that the Labour Party's centralising ethos was going to marginalized Scottish identity, that, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of Scottish distinctiveness that there had been within the union was going to be trampled on. So it led to this movement for a Scottish parliament in the post-Second World War period, and it led to a Scottish covenant movement, hmm. where there was a covenant uh, presented uh, with two million signatures or whatever it was, 
um, uh, claiming uh, the right to a Scottish Parliament and to uh, uphold Scotland's national distinctiveness within the UK. So that was a, an important movement at the time as well, which was a reminder, I think, of, of Scotland's Protestant heritage and the way that it could feed into politics. Um, but I think you would be hard pushed to find explicit reminders of that afterwards. Yeah, thank you. Well, Graham, just as we come to the end of our conversation, can we return to a comment you made earlier on about Brexit? Uh, you, you describe Brexit as perhaps the issue that could break the Union. If the United Kingdom could only hold together as part of the, the European Union, what kind of a union was it? Um, do you mean that if the United Kingdom remained within the European Union? Yeah, how, how, well, to me, uh, I'm not sure how this would work now, but I, I would have thought that given the narrowness of the Brexit verdict, shall we say, of 2016, um, there might have been some kind, at least a soft Brexit where all sorts of contacts and connections would have remained, uh, remaining in the customs union and so on, which would have mollified opinion in Scotland. And perhaps accompanying that, could have been this full-scale revamp of the United Kingdom in a federal form. Because I do think that many people who would still see value in the union uh, can only now envisage the union being saved in that way, where we federalise the whole of the United Kingdom. We reform the House of Lords, turn it into a Senate of the nations and regions, uh, former Prime Minister, Labour Prime Minister Gordon Brown has come out with these ideas in recent times. And I think it may well be too late, but I do think that these ideas have quite a lot of history now. I mean, there was a, a great deal of discussion in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, around the term home rule all round. So these ideas are not new. The idea of federalising or quasi-federalising the UK has been with us for a long time. Um, but if it doesn't happen now, and it doesn't happen in relation to, to, if you like, mitigating the consequences of Brexit, then I, I really do fear for the future of the union. Hmm. Well, Graham Walker, Professor of Politics at Queen's University, Belfast, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to have you on the show. Yes, thanks very much, Graham. Thank you. Well, well that, that was really fascinating from an American's perspective, at least, um, with who dabbles in, in British history to somewhat. Um, if only, you know, one of the things that we talked about by email before we went on was about taking these categories like unionism and nationalism uh, for granted and, and the different meaning they have in your context, because in the United States – at least the way I understand our history, union and nation go hand in hand. You To preserve the union, you're preserving the nation, whereas in places like Northern Ireland and beyond, unionism means something different from, from nationalism. Nationalism could represent a, a national Ireland as a nation or Scotland as a nation, an independent nation. Um, so for me, that 
politically is just really fascinating to see the way the empire slash commonwealth slash whatever, however you want to regard it, tries to hold on to these important parts of its territory, political dominance. I suppose that's the difference between a United Kingdom and a set of United States, isn't it? The United Kingdom is a, a, a composite monarchy of multiple nations, whereas the United States is a single nation made up of individual territories or jurisdictions who have, have they not effectively abandoned their claim to independence, re Republican status? Is, is Texas still a Republican? I'm not sure. Uh, well, they think the Texans say that, but, but it's also interesting too that you, the, the conversation there at the end with Graham about federalism, that federalism might be an option. I mean, some of us here in the states who are conservatives, political conservatives, would like a more federal uh, relationship between the states and the national or central government. And yet during the pandemic, federalism has been roaring back with state governors having power uh, to make orders that, you know, we haven't seen the likes of this for a long time. So federalism is still very much in place here in ways that even some of us uh, perhaps long for now we think, uh-oh, maybe, maybe it wouldn't be such a great idea to give the governor of Illinois such, such power. Um, so again, just the differences between the political situations is fascinating. But on the other side, with when you throw religion into the question and you compare Protestant Roman Catholic relations, so what Graham was saying about the SNP appealing to Catholics in Western Scotland with the school question and, and maintaining support for what I assume are parochial schools, um, it just takes me back to John F. Kennedy, 1960, reassuring Protestant ministers in Texas, which probably was a republic then, that uh, he believed in absolute separation of church and state and no public funding for parochial schools, period. Mm. And the United States has a long history of not giving uh, public support to religious schools because it's, it's a closet way of not funding Roman Catholic schools. Mm. Um, so it's just a very different Again, different set of uh, religious factors when you compare the Protestant and Roman Catholic identities. Yeah, we've we've talked about Paul Blanchard before uh, on this format, and uh, you know, a, a great socialist journalist of the nineteen fifties when he's in his heyday, really writing about or writing about or trying to expose in his own way um, what he thinks of as the anti-democratic forces that are working some of these religious denominations. And uh, in his book in Ireland, he, he came to Ireland in the mid-50s and spent about a year here um, mm. writing a warning to America of, of what he could see of um, of the Republic of Ireland. Uh, he, he, he writes about Catholic education in Ireland and Scotland and the ways in which s states are um, su supporting distinctive denominational education. In Ireland, he recognises that makes sense because it's the by far the majority population um, who are looking for a confessional education for their children and, and their, their taxation through the states providing for it. But he's much more struck by the situation in Scotland where it's a religious minority that's been given this uh, publicly funded education of mm. parochial schools. 
Um, and I, I think from, I need to go back and look at it, but I think from memory, he's talking there about these being held up as examples for Catholic educators um, around Europe of, of what could be achieved if Catholics could engage imaginatively with government in their jurisdictions. Mm. But, you know, <clears throat> I was really struck by, by Graham's comment there about the way in which the Northern Ireland Troubles drove on, partly because no one could agree what the problem was that had to be solved. Uh, I was doing some reading over the summer in the Troubles there, and I was really struck by the way in which so many loyalists thought they were fighting Catholicism, but so many nationalists believed that they were fighting for a socialist republic. So, you know, there was a real kind of um, mm. conceptual gap, um, you know, which is relevant to religious nationalism, obviously, but a really important conceptual gap over what it was was actually at stake. Right. right. Fascinating. Darryl, but, you know, again, you, you throw, you compare American Catholics into that, and I just, not to self-promote too much, but having a book just come out on this, I mean, you see... American Catholics embrace a Whiggish narrative of U.S. national identity in the post-World War II period. And, and in some ways, they're regarded as not good Catholics because they've sort of gone over to a, a Protestant narrative. But, um, but there are just so many different ways in which Protestants and Roman Catholics adapt to the political realities, demographic realities of where they are. Um, and before you wrap us up, I want to ask you, though, since national identity is tied greatly to narratives of nations, the origins, narratives, etc., and over here we're having this debate between the 1619 Project, say, and the 1776 Project, Conversely, um, and even more recently, there's been a 1620 project to celebrate pilgrims landing in Plymouth Colony. Um, is it the case that in your neck of the woods between Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, uh, was, but especially within the, within the UK, that you have had different national narratives starting with different timelines? Um, so there, an older narrative for Scotland would have gone back to 1560 and, and first Protestant Parliament, say, um, you know, and then another version might have gone back to the national, the Solemn League and Covenants of 1643 or whatnot, and then Glorious Revolution later, the Union of Scotland and England. But have they have have the narratives kept up in in the school uh, textbooks? As it were, and not that you would know that offhand, but is is do you have a, have a sense of just a different storyline for for these sort of big high points of British history? It's, it's an interesting question. I, I, I have no idea really what's being taught in schools now, but I suppose one one of the great gifts of nationalism is coherence in identity to a group of people, isn't it? Um. Where you know in 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 an older in, in you know mid, mid Victorian Scotland there was an obvious story of the nation and of you know as Graham comments it left out really significant population groups they they were not really there they had to struggle to become a part of that story uh, I mean suppose if you take that discussion into this island uh, the island of Ireland uh, it becomes much more complicated because you've got one one population group by far the majority in the island 
tracing its origins back um, into time immemorial. And you've got another population group that traces its origins in the northeast counties principally, but elsewhere too, to very specific points from the mid-16th to the early 17th century. So they've got a very clear beginning, which allows them very clear cultural links to Scotland, which are you know, increasingly destabilising as Scotland takes on a sense of itself that no longer reinforces the distinctive identities of those who might be regarded as planters or settlers 400 years after their mm. ancestors arrived. Uh, and, and so all of a sudden then you've got this this group, and this is, I think is going to be destabilising in the medium to short term here in Northern Ireland. You've got a population group that, that has a natural cultural hinterland that no longer identifies with it. Hmm. Uh, and so that this tiny group of um, pied noir, you might say, in a front in a French context, you know, they, they they are being left to try to figure out what their identity is, who they belong to. They, they use the symbolism right. of Britishness, I think, very slowly recognizing the British state really has nothing for them, um, using the iconography of Scottishness while. They look on Scotland moving inevitably towards independence, as far as I can see. And, and you know, they still feel as resentful and suspicious, perhaps, of their of their um, of their neighbours in the same island. And then, of course, well, all, well, all, that, I... all that's complicated by, you know, new new Irish coming into the country, migration from ah. Europe, Africa, elsewhere, uh, you know, which just throws another um, right. complicating factor over all of it. And... You know? So those, say, disen culturally disenfranchised people in uh, Northern Ireland, to plug your book, since I've plugged mine, hmm. your forthcoming book on survivalists, is that you see a similar dynamic going on there among the people in the Northwest, Western, unsettled parts of the U.S. feeling abandoned by narratives that no longer include them. I think for them that's good news, isn't it? They, Is it? It gives them a chance to start again. So huh. up there in Idaho, Montana, you know, they're they're moving in increasing numbers. It's a real migration, real population shift going on there. You know, at least tens of thousands of people moving into the area, driving up property prices, so that becoming a survivalist has become a really expensive hobby. Huh. Um, you know, it's no longer for the average Joe. It's it's actually quite a costly thing to do. Yeah. Um, but but for them, it's you know it's it's a chance to begin again. It's it's future orientated. That that's fine if you've got institutions and young people and institutions that can train them. But here, you've got an ever diminishing population group, which is shipping out two thirds of its university age young people to Scottish or English institutions. They they never return. And so not, not only is the population we're talking about in Northern Ireland decreasing in size, it's decreasing relatively in education and therefore in opportunity. Hmm. And it's political leaders by and large are not dealing with this fact. Wow. So anyway, great to talk to you, Daryl. You too, Crawford. See you later. Okay.